Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was actually just in Hong Kong last week, so this is my first Sunday back in America. Uh, I'm still kind of jet-lagged because while I was in Hong Kong, I never got a full night's sleep. And right now, uh, let me just put it this way. I've been getting something like 12 hours of sleep a night, and then sometimes I'm still sleepy and will take an afternoon nap. So if I, if I start dozing off up here, then you know, you know what happened. Okay. But hopefully that won't happen because you know, here we are, hearing the Word of God. So let's pray that I might hear the Word of God as much as you as we preach. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you that you have given us your word, that you have chosen to speak to us, though we do not deserve uh, to hear from you, though we do not deserve to approach you, yet you have sent your Son to die for our sins, that you would draw us close, that you would open our ears to hear your word. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what your Spirit has to say to us. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is from the book of 1 Peter, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. You can find it in your uh, bulletins, or you can also find it near the end of your Bibles. My Bible, you can see it's almost right at the very end. Um, I'm actually going to start reading from the very beginning, from verse 1, but you, know, you guys can follow along your bulletins from verse 3. It's only a couple of short verses. So I'm going to start reading from verse 1. Please give your undivided attention to the reading of God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again with a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, for those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. You know, when picking a passage like this, it's kind of hard sometimes to know where to, to divide things up because there's so much stuff packed in here. I could easily broken this into like four or five different sermons. But I thought I'd, I'd give us a, an overview because in the Greek, this is one long sentence. Uh, so it's actually one thought 
one joyous expression that Peter has for the people he's writing to. And, and what is this that makes Peter so happy, so, which is so wonderful that he just has to say it in one long breath? I mean, I don't know about you, but this entire passage takes up half a page, right? Can you basically say half a page in one breath? It's all the more astounding when you realize that Peter is writing to people that he calls exiles. Now, think about the word exile. Is that a happy word? Probably not. To be an exile means that you're never really at home. You're never at ease. And what Peter's talking to people who are never really going to be at ease with the culture, with its institutions, with its methods. But at the same time, are never really going to be able to get away from it either. What kind of joy, what kind of hope does Peter give to exiles? It's going to have to be different from the people who are settling. It's going to have to be different from the people who have found a home here. Because to be an exile is never to be at home, as long as you are called an exile. Hope is to be found where home is. And for Christian, home is heavenly, not earthly. It's grounded in grace that's not of this world, in the triune God, the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to the sprinkled blood of the Son. And so I want to encapsulate this hope for exiles in not three points, but four points. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I just broke the trend here. Okay. So the first point is that it is eternal, not temporal, verses 3 and 4. It is about patience, not instant gratification, verses 5 through 7. It is invisible, not visible, verses 8 and 9. And it is through hearing, not doing, verses 10 through 12. So again, it is eternal, not temporal. It is about patience, not instant gratification. It is invisible, not visible, and it comes from hearing, not doing. So let's begin with the fact that it is eternal and not temporal. A heavenly hope for exiles. And I think it's easy. It's easy to get into the idea that Christian hope is, is mostly about making our lives here and now better, especially because we live in sunny California. I mean, you have, to, you have to admit it, life here is not bad. Even if you're affected by the economic downturn, you know, it's still sunny out there. Is there any wonder why a lot of homeless people like to gather in California? But are we just looking at the surface of things? Isn't there a suffering that goes much deeper? than just, oh, it's sunny outside, you know, at least I'm not going to freeze to death. You know, I, I can be happy when the sun is out. What happens to those whose bodies failed them? A couple years ago, we buried my grandma. And for years before she died, she couldn't walk by herself. She couldn't feed herself. Someone had to dress her, take her to the bathroom. And what do you say to her? Cheer up, you're living in California, it's sunny here. Cheer up, things will get better. They always do. Really. 
How about Christians right now in Pakistan or in the uncertainty in Egypt? Those who are forced to live in garbage dumps, their only water source brown, polluted, and diseased. Christians who have lost little children's senseless tragedies. Somehow telling them, cheer up, it's sunny. Things will get better. Just doesn't cut it. And in our Facebook society, it's hard to keep our eyes fixed on what's lasting, much less things which are eternal. You know, we live in a so-called information age where we can get news channels 24-7. With the internet, we get billions of bits of information at our fingertips. And it's hard these days, with all the noise surrounding us, to know what's lasting, what's eternal. A pastor named Kevin DeYoung wrote that uh, he once Googled uh, the Peloponnesian War. That's the war that happened between Athens and Sparta uh, a few hundred years before our Lord came. He said he got... You know, Googling Athens as part of the Peloponnesian War, he got about 600,000 hits. Okay? Then he tried Googling Mr. T. You guys know who he is? No, I guess he's, he's kind of on the downs. Anyway. Um, okay, Athens as part of 600,000 hits. Mr. T, over 6 million hits. That's like 10 times as much. And if you were to judge by the internet alone, you might imagine that some 80s TV show about some you know, tough dude Mohawk, he said, you know, I've been in a fool, is more critical to Western civilization than anything that the Greek historians had ever written about. You know, you, you look at the news today. Actually, I remember a few years ago, there was uh, the G8 summit. The G8 is the, uh, the, the economic powerhouses of the world gathering to meet. And news coverage was interrupted by newsflash. What could be so important to interrupt the summit of the greatest economic powerhouses of the world, the news flash was that Paris Hilton had gotten out of jail. And we see it even today, right? We have, what, in Egypt, the turmoil, the, the uncertainty, the, uh, the, the democratic overthrow of a dictator, of a long-time corrupt government. And in the headlines right next to it is about whether Lindsay Lohan will go to jail or not. Really? Is that as important, what, why are these things side by side? And doesn't that characterize our lives, chasing after temporal things, controlled by temporal things? And what are we saying that our hope is in the midst of that? Peter writes to us, he calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Resurrection from the dead. Or would we rather spend hours on Facebook uh, checking our mousetraps and you know, our farm bills or, or whatever? Come on, it's resurrection from the dead. Doesn't that say something? Resurrection is more than about you know, just coming back to life, to face more of this rat race here that we face. But it's about a new world. A new creation, a world that's at rest, a world which is at peace. Everything as it ought to be in the full presence of God. Verse 4 says it's an inheritance which is what? Imperishable. You know, one day some server is going to crash somewhere and your Facebook account is going to go down. It's undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, in a secure place, somewhere which... Moths cannot destroy, where thieves cannot steal. 
you know, this is why Peter can write this big, long sentence, beginning with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, if you, has anyone read Ephesians recently? Because 1 Peter right here sounds a lot like Ephesians, who, where Paul begins, again, by blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be interested to know that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 is also one big, long sentence. This exuberant praise of joy. And you see, what's the hope that inspires this praise? An eternity. A hope which is from eternity. Eternity changes the meaning of the word hope. The only hope that the world has to offer us is, I hope things will get better. It's the same kind of hope that you might say, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. You see, it's not our hopes that we place in our political leaders who make promises and then fail to deliver. And honestly, we put way too much, we, we put way too much stock in them. And that's probably a symptom that we put our hopes in weak, temporal things, not the lasting, eternal things. Resurrection. Resurrection from the dead. The resurrection in Jesus Christ. Christian hope is not based on, I hope it will happen. Christian hope is based on certainty. It will happen. And you see, that gets us to the second point. If it's eternal and not temporal, then it's about patience right now for the future and not about instant gratification. Today we live in a society where everything is instant. From instant information on the internet to your instant ramen. Society makes these vague promises about a better future. And, you know, every time election season comes along, politicians like to talk a lot about hope. But what is this about? Isn't it lulling us to make ourselves happy for the moment? It replaces hope with a momentary happiness. And of course, the, the biggest way that we replace hope with momentary happiness is through buying stuff. Right? Isn't, the, isn't that what we do when we watch those commercials and we realize we really need that new car? Not because the car actually drives any better than the car I drive right now, but because right, it, it, it gives me an adventure. It gives meaning to my life. I mean, you know, the, notice how the commercials aren't really about the car. It's really about your life and how you now have meaning because you're driving this car. You know, capitalism has been wildly successful at producing stuff, but largely it's built on shallower relationships. Uh, marketing is really about making us buy stuff that we really don't need. And so, at the end of the day, when uh, car commercials are about self-fulfillment, when Coca-Cola is about world peace, does anything really matter in this world? It's basically a meaningless world, but a meaningless world on which we stamp a happy face because we just bought something and now our lives are fulfilled. Uh, the, <laughs> the Greeks, uh, there's this Greek play which kind of saw through this uh, kind of emptiness. In fact, one of these plays, uh, the chorus basically says something to the effect of, uh, what's the best fortune in life? The best fortune in life is basically never to have been born. Uh, the second best fortune is basically, if you have been born, to die as quickly as you can. Uh, there's one um, gravestone that was found in the ancient world that says, Here lies Dionysius of Tarsus, 60 years old, having never married. I wish my father hadn't either. 
And if life is just about the momentary happiness, then what was the point of being born at all? Why bother trying to experience the momentary happinesses if there are many lasting pains which go along with it? You see, if it's about instant gratification, well, the world has a great way of offering that kind of instant gratification hope. Uh, it's called Disney. I mean, what's Disney? Disney is the happiest place on Earth. But what is that happiness? It's a, it's a static happiness. There's no past to escape. There's no future to look forward to. Um, one of the existentialist philosophers described uh, hell kind of that way, where people's eyes do not blink, they only stare. Men and women have no future there, nor is there a past from which they can flee. Every moment is the same. That is the hell of hell. And so, you know, I, I'm not trying to dump on Disney as, this, as in, you know, don't go to Disney or anything like that. I was actually just at Disney last summer. Um, it wasn't entirely my choice, but it was the first time I was back at Disney because uh, the last time I was at Disney before that was I was three years old, and uh, I hated it because Mickey Mouse never came to hug me. You know, the, I, I have a grudge against the mouse now. Uh, I, I saw him briefly when I was last there, and he was hugging all these kids, and man, that the, the rage. Okay, but here's the thing, right? We want to be happy, and even Disney can make me mad. But if we really want to be happy, what would do the trick, right? Buying the right stuff, taking the right drugs. Now, now oh, kids, don't do drugs. <laughs> but, but, you know, if you look at the world's expectations, the world gives us two messages. Do everything you can to make yourself happy. Don't take drugs. But don't these messages kind of conflict each other? Doesn't the world give an incoherent picture of the world? Right? Both of these cannot be simultaneously true. Because I can be very happy taking certain kinds of drugs, I know, because I, I, I was pumped up on morphine after a surgery, and, and it was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> the world cannot give us a coherent answer. The message, don't do drugs, conflicts with everything else that Hollywood bombards us with, everything that Madison Avenue bombards us with, when we drug ourselves up with our cars, with our clothes, with our iPhones that make us happy. Christianity offers something different. The Christian hope is a story, a linear progression from creation to fall, to redemption, to a final perfection of all things. A heavenly hope with a heavenly destination. And we see in verse 5 that we are guarded by God's power on this pilgrim journey through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last day. You see, it's real. We have the salvation, this resurrection life now. But it's a revelation that's not going to be revealed in, in, in this age, at this time. We wait patiently for a day when it will come. You know, Peter mentions a little while. And when he says a little while, when it comes to various sufferings and trials, he isn't saying, that's okay, things will be better next week. Or that's okay, you know, hang in there. Things will be better next year. You know, once we uh, impeach the current Roman Empire and get some believer on the throne and uh, we can take back Rome for Jesus, right? This little while that Peter talks about is the entire earthly lifetime. See, heavenly hope gives them patience. 
Because what is 60 years? What's 70 years? What's 80 years compared to eternity? Compared to eternal life? See, we have a past filled with mistakes, filled with burdens, filled with baggage, filled with sin. And the world tries to ease that pain by distracting us from reality, hiding our heads in the sand. Only Christ can give a lasting solution, rejoicing through various trials. You see, if our happiness is Disney, then once Disney disappears, there's no happiness. What will endure when everything is burnt by fire, even if your body be consigned to the flames? What hope remains? Only what is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And this brings us to our third point. This hope which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, is also at this point invisible and not visible. That's why we have to wait patiently. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him, you do not see him now that are filled with a joy unspeakable and filled with glory. And that's the toughest thing about a hope which is future. Because it means that we have to reckon with the fact that, in one sense, Jesus is, is not here right now. He is absent. Uh, well, in a sense, he's with us right now for the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, is that if we just say, okay, you know, I got the Holy Spirit, I got Jesus in my heart, and it's okay, I think we're kind of rationalizing a bit. Because I think we should want Jesus to be here right now. Um, I don't know. Have you read the Lord of the Rings books? I'm not talking about watching the movies. I'm talking about actually reading the books. You know, I kind of got the, the sense reading the books. Gandalf was one of those characters. Whenever he was around, I felt like nothing could really seriously go wrong. Right? He was one of the guys where, you know, if Gandalf was there, it's okay. Right? So when Gandalf is, is scared... You're really scared, right? When Gandalf, you know, basically after d pulling off that badass move with you shall not pass, boom, right? And then he gets pulled down into the abyss, right? You're just like, I'll shoot, right? Now everything's gone to the pot. Uh, I don't know, I mean, maybe uh, more recently some of you might be more familiar with, with uh, Harry Potter. You know, uh, Dumbledore is kind of like that, right? Whenever Dumbledore was around, nothing seriously bad could happen. Right, until he got killed. I hope I'm not spoiling anything for, for anyone else. <laughs> but you see, in a sense, this is Jesus for us. Wow, Jesus is not, you know, you wonder why when God is ruling everything, you know, we think that, we, we see with our eyes, why is the world going to the pot? Well, in a sense, right, God is still ruling. Everything happens because, you know, nothing happens without his permission, without his decree. But in a sense, things are visibly going to the pot because he's not physically right here, making everything okay. When he comes, everything will be okay. And that's what we want to look forward to. That's the hope we look forward to. Though you see him not, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I want to remind us that just because it's invisible doesn't mean that it's imaginary. The outcome of our faith, salvation of your souls, the hope is substantial. It's trustworthy. It's true. And I think it's a bit ironic because, you know, we can see Disney. Oh boy, can we see Disney. It's everywhere. Uh, but it offers no real, no, no real hope. At the end of the day, it's an illusion. 
one of those shiny things that the world dangles in front of our eyes to distract us from what's really important. But right now, what we can't see is Jesus. But he grants us a peace which is beyond understanding, Philippians 4, a joy unspeakable, full of glory. And when it comes to living in hope, seeing is a bit overrated. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so now we come to our last point, which is that hope comes through hearing and not doing. Because I want to point out it's connected to the idea that we cannot see it, it's invisible. Because if we can't see it, we can't master it. Uh, but instead, what we, we see that what Peter talks about, Peter talks about uh, the prophets prophesying about a grace that was to be yours. Uh, hope which is fostered through hearing a message. It's not something that we were able to accomplish, something that we have to receive. And some of us like to put down the value of talk. Uh, you know, we want in on the piece of the action, right? I mean, especially being Americans, can do. But see how the prophets of old uh, treasured this talk in verse 10 and 11. It said that they searched and inquired carefully. Verse 12, these are things which even the angels long to look at. And what I want to remind us of is that in Christ, we have something that the angels longed to see the sufferings of Christ, and subsequent glories. And that might be a good summary of our faith and our hope. You see, because it puts the accent on what Christ did. And that's the critical action. That the Son of God was not ashamed to take on an identity himself as an exile, leaving his heavenly glory to walk our sin-cursed land. And he became the ultimate exile in our place, exiled from his Father's presence as he hung on the cross. Jesus was the one who did not seek instant gratification that his eyes could see. But Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and there's risen in glory seated at the right hand of God. See, this is something that the prophets and the angels long to see. And, you know, if hope were something about doing, I think it'd be a little too obvious. It's about, you know, let's forge ahead and make a better life for ourselves. Let's go take back America for Jesus. You know, if it were something as obvious as that, I don't think there would be anything to wonder about. But why is there something to wonder about? Because our hope is, is not a kingdom like any kingdom in this world. It's not obvious. Our hope is a different kind of kingdom. John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. And indeed, Jesus demonstrates that his kingdom looks nothing like the kingdom of this world. How did he do it? He demonstrated it through showing that this is a kingdom whose king wins by dying on a cross. Think about that. Right? If Obama went ahead and said, you know something? I'm going to make America great. I'm going to make America great by getting my butt whooped. What would you think? Right? During the next elections, what would you think if somebody, you know, if, if somebody ran on the platform, you know, we're going to be a nation where, you know, as an elected official, 
I promise you one thing. I promise you that I'm going to suffer. And why don't you come suffer with me? You think you'll get many votes? I don't think so. Because the kingdom of God is nothing like the kingdom in this world. It makes no sense in the world. That's why not even the angels could figure this out until Jesus came. And if that's how our king wins, by dying, by facing humiliating loss, then how can he possibly lose? If he wins by dying, then maybe for us, everything between winning a Nobel Prize to a humiliating, suffering slaughter is a win for the kingdom. Doesn't that put hope in a new perspective? Because if Jesus wins by the most outrageous show of weakness, what does that show about our worldly power plays of strength? Why is it that so often our lives look no different from the lives of anyone else out there? Is it because we've bought into the lies of this world, into the visible, the temporal, the instant gratification? But our methods cannot be the world's methods. It's because our hope is not the world's hope. And here's the difference between the world's offer of hope and God's offer of hope. The world's offer of hope is in your work, in your labor. It can fail, and it will fail. But the hope given to us in the gospel, again, is not about doing, but it's about hearing what Christ has done. It's on Christ's labor. It cannot fail. So while for the world our labor is our hope, for the Christian, we labor in hope. But our hope is not our labor. Yeah, I know. It it makes things messy. It's not a a simple solution for you guys. And it's easy to fall into one of two extremes. One is the extreme where it's total retreat. Well, you know, it's not our labor, so let's not do anything but sit around and just wait for Jesus to come back. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, well, Jesus is the victor, so everything we do must work out really well, right? It's it's the the total uh, absolute advance. Um, but, you know, just as retreat makes hay of the goodness of God's creation, to say that, oh, you know, it's total advance, is to put our hope in our labor. But we labor in hope exactly because our hope is not our labor. Our promise is from our Lord who won by dying, who wins through what the world calls an epic fail, And so any work that you do, think about it. If Jesus wins through an epic fail, and he promises that if you labor in faith and in faithfulness, your work is not in vain. It doesn't matter how wildly successful you are on one hand, and it doesn't matter how much it feels like you're beating your head against a wall on the other. Your labor is not in vain, according to God's economy. The fortunes of God's people do not rise and fall with our visible successes, with the Christianization of nations. But it is a victory. The victory of Christ's church is one of exiles, of those who are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and through it all, the gospel is going forward, and all the fury and the might of hell cannot stand against it. 
We labor in hope, but our hope is not our labor. We have a God who has guaranteed us a success beyond what this world can envision, beyond what our eyes can see. And so we see that our hope is also by grace and not by works. It's a grace that leads to people who are weak, who are weary exiles, struggling in a world full of hardship and misery to a confident hope, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for us in heaven. A hope that can survive the test of every trial and will not disappoint. And while we do not see him now, Jesus will one day return. And we will see him with our own eyes. We will be exiles no more, but we will be settlers in a better land, a kingdom which is unshakable, our hopes fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to be distracted by the shiny things of this world. It is so easy to forget what is important, what is lasting, what is eternal. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would let your word remind us day by day of the things which really matter, that we might place our attention on things which will last. Lord, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, these are things which the world can never understand, but help us to understand that what we have is so much better than what the world has to offer. Let us be those who live lives as exiles, but as victorious exiles, not because we're winning where the eye can see, but we are winning where it really matters. And so let us go forth boldly to labor in hope, but let us never turn that labor into our hope. But let us always hope in the sure and certain resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.